Why do we not trust atoms? Why don't we trust atoms? Because they make up everything. Oh God, that's so bad. And that's like that's that's like when does a joke become a dad joke, right? When does a joke become a dad joke? When it becomes apparent. You know, you know, they say that dad said is uh, I'm afraid of the calendar. You know why? No, why? Because his days are numbered. Actually, I screwed it up. It's actually it's it's days are numbered. I, so I screwed up the dad <laughs> joke. Okay. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, you know, that's that that reminds me why dad jokes are so good. They're just like an elevator. You know why? Why? Because they work on so many levels. Oh, God, it's so bad. Hey, and welcome to the Stanton Law Podcast, where we discuss a wide range of issues facing businesses as they grow and scale. I'm your host, Josh Joel, counsel at Stanton Law. On today's podcast, I have with me, once again, my colleague, David Adams, who is the transactional guru at Stanton Law. And I asked David to come on today, actually last minute, so this is going to be fun. Uh, by the way, lawyers, uh, on rainy, cold days that are a little slow at work, we like to nerd out on podcasting. That's actually what lawyers do in the office on days when things are slow, right, David? Absolutely. Right. So today, today's one of those days, because things are actually never slow at Stanton Law. We are super busy. Um, but anyway, so uh, I've got David on today to speak about uh, a topic that comes up time and time again. And we've spoken about it a bit in the past in, in a specific context, but uh, want to talk about different considerations from the trenches of representing medical practices. There are a lot of different things that are very unique and, and special with respect to, to medical practices. And we do represent a lot of medical practices in our work at Stanton Law. And we wanted to talk a little bit about some of the things that come up over and over again that folks should be aware of. So I wanted to throw it out to David because he certainly has a lot more experience than I am. I'm not going to tell you how many gray hairs he has, but what are some of the special considerations that you see, David, in your practice and your experience representing physicians' practices and various medical practices that are unique as opposed to any other small business? First off, uh, thanks, Josh, for having me back on. I understand that someone canceled last minute, and so uh, I was the only one in the office, which is why I'm on the podcast today. But I do want to answer your questions and actually say I, I do represent a fair number of medical practices. Uh, you help me with most of them. So I'm going to ask a few questions of you oh, on God. this one as to, as to how medical practices are unique, because as your question implies, um, they are very much so. First off, the thing that, you know, we often talk about at Stanton Law is we represent small and medium-sized businesses. I mean, we also do a fair amount of work for sort of your, you know, Fortune 50 businesses, but, you know, the lion's share of uh, the mergers and acquisitions and transactional deals are for these uh, small businesses and most physician uh, practices and honestly, most non-hospital Healthcare provider businesses are small businesses, and so those usually have their own set of unique uh, circumstances. First, being there usually personalities involved. I mean, you don't have, and meaning that the owners of the business are often working at the business. So it's a little bit different from your standard um, business because usually the person you are uh, communicating with um, has actually built or worked at the specific business for a, a, a long time, and it usually represents a good chunk of their life's work. And so that usually means that you have to be a lot more 
responsive, interested, and understand the social dynamics involved. So with with that said, I'm going to turn it around to you, Josh, since we usually tag team our representation of medical businesses. What are some of the considerations that you see in dealing with physician employment contracts that are unique um, in the physician slash healthcare space that are not in your typical employment agreement? So, yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And before I, I answer that, I want to address your point is that certainly when dealing with doctors, lawyers, accountants, but those of us who are professionals, uh, we tend to be dealing with personalities. And that's a that's a, a huge point. And we kind of started before bickering around before the podcast telling dad jokes. I just wanted to throw one more in there, which is uh, what's the difference between a doctor and God? You know this one? I don't know this one. Uh, what, uh, what, what, what is the difference? God does not walk, in, walk around thinking he's a doctor. Um, <laughs> but anyway, no, but the point is, and you can insert lawyer there as well, and it's just fine. But, <laughs> but to answer your question, when it comes to physicians' employment agreements, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because when we see a physician employment agreement, typically the first place we look uh, when it comes to doctors is the restrictive covenants, the non-competes, non-solicits, and other things like that. Uh, now, that's not unique to doctors, but it's something that is specific to doctors because there's an interesting balance that you don't have in other contexts between uh, the fact that we really want to make sure that that uh, patients are able to see their doctor. At the same time, a business has legitimate business interests to protect when drafting non-competes and non-solicits that you can't take the patients with you. So I find that there's an interesting, almost ethical consideration uh, when drafting an employment agreement or looking at a physician's employment agreement to to strike the balance between protecting the business and making sure that patients are able to see the doctor that they want to see and are not restricted from, from seeing that doctor. And we actually see that often in the enforcement of those covenants in courts that, that courts are very hesitant. On the one hand, they recognize that doctors represent the revenue of a practice and therefore they ha- we have to protect those interests, but at the same time, recognizing that we don't want to stop a patient from seeing their doctor. So that, that's one area that I always look to first to see whether or not whichever side I'm on, uh, those restrictive covenants strike the right balance between uh, protecting the, the business and at the same time protecting the patient's rights. Now, there are other aspects about physicians' employment agreements that are unique that other agreements don't have. A lot of them are going to be term agreements and we, as opposed to at will, uh, beca- and especially, in the, and they're going to have a different range of cause and for cause type uh, termination provisions as to when a doctor can be fired. That's not the typical standard practice in uh, most employment realms. Usually you're going to find at will agreements where you can hire a fire for any reason at all. In the in the context of dealing with doctors, oftentimes we see term employment for a year, two years or, or whatever it is. And the other really interesting thing is depending on the kind of doctor we're dealing with, you often have long notice provisions as to how long you have to give notice before a doctor can 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 actually leave the practice. I mean, I've seen agreements in OBGYN clinics, for example, where it's a year, and that's very very unusual. But when you think about the fact that a pregnancy goes goes for nine months, hopefully, uh, it makes sense that you would want again to strike the balance where a patient should have the right to continue seeing their doctor and have some continuity of care. And so that, those are some of the things that we see. I don't know if I'm missing anything. There's obviously some of the more obvious ones that are, that are unique to the medical profession, which are pretty boilerplate and standard in terms of, you know, the, the ethics rules, anti-Stark rules, these kind of things that, that come up, come to play that don't necessarily apply in other areas. But those are the main ones that I see that are significantly different. The last thing I'll just mention is that oftentimes physician employment agreements go hand in hand 
with the stockholder purchase uh, purchasing into the into the practice, and there's going to be some interplay between uh, a stockholder agreement and a partnership agreement and the employment agreements as well. Which I'm going to throw back to you because your primary uh, expertise is dealing with the stockholder purchases and the and the stockholder agreements. I probably don't even have all the right lingo. And uh, what are the things that you see that are unique when when a doctor is considering purchasing a practice that might be uh, an important thing to consider that's different than any other small business? Well, that's that's awesome. That that reminds me of another great dad joke. Oh, um, uh, I, I I made a, a pencil with two erasers. Did you hear about it? No. Probably not. It was pretty pointless. Oh God. Uh, but but. W- what is not pointless and what is most important in healthcare uh, transactions, and you actually touched on this earlier, are the uh, what's commonly referred to as the Stark Law and its uh, anti-kickback statute. And, and I'm just going to touch very briefly on that because um, it, these things sort of uh, are sprinkled on top of any healthcare uh, legal issue. It's sort of at a high level um, under Stark, if a physician or her immediate family member has uh, like a financial relationship with an entity, uh, the physician may not refer Medicaid, Medicare patients to the entity for designated health services. You'll hear it about DHS and the entity receiving such referral may not bill for such services unless a specific exception applies. English? (laughs) So so, so what what does that mean? So um, the anti-kickback statute generally prohibits knowing solicitation, you know, receiving or offering payment or any other type of remuneration or uh, money, et cetera, in in return for the referral of items or services. And the other thing that comes up a lot is that um, while this is a federal statute, each state has its own state analog to this. And when we're talking about a healthcare M&A transaction, there is a, there is an exception, and it's called the isolated transactions exception, which requires that the amount of consideration uh, be consistent with uh, fair market value. So you have to have a valuation. And the transaction has to be commercially reasonable. Um, and, and similar to Stark, the anti-kickback statute has certain safe harbors, which, uh, if they're satisfied, can be um, sort of a shield uh, from allegations of abuse. Um, again, this is at a very, very high level, and you can go deep down the rabbit hole in, uh, in, in, in all of this. And one thing that pops up for a lot of our clients is, um, you know, when private equity or corporate buyers, uh, use some of these, um, protections, uh, in order to complete healthcare M&A transactions. Also, there uh, in many states, including Georgia, there's a corporate um, prohibition on the practice of medicine that has its own issues that you have to work around. So those those three issues, really the the Stark anti-kickback and uh, the valuation issues, pop up over and over and over again in any healthcare. Uh, transaction. So, so, so let me just clarify on that because I know that, that uh, we've seen a lot uh, in, especially in the past couple of years, we're seeing a lot of private equity come in and, and gobble up uh, smaller practices, especially when you have a principal or, or a, 
a main partner in the practice who is reaching towards, you know, the end of his career or the last couple of years of his career, they'll come in and, and gobble up a, a, a smaller practice as part of private equity. So just kind of a, everything that you just said, moving into kind of plain English, what are the things that, that uh, in structuring that transaction that a, a doctor needs to know about uh, when he's considering selling his practice or when he's considering buying into a, into a smaller practice? So again, all that is good legal language, but, but what does it practically mean of what a doctor needs to be thinking about? So the the key takeaway from that, and by the way, that's a that's a great question, and it's it's something that pops up a lot in healthcare M and A transaction, and that's you know the parties to any healthcare M and A transaction are always going to be, try to explore ways to incentivize um, physician involvement without triggering. Uh, Stark, such as you know, setting up an established bonus pool that is independent of uh, again what are known as DHS revenues, and so any type of um, incentive plan, future equity participation, sale of the business has to be structured around um, those considerations, and so again, those 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 pop up the lot the, uh, the uh, a lot. Um, but what are some of the most important laws that people need to be aware of in working through those employment agreements, either at the federal or the state level that you've bumped into, in- including including something that comes up a lot? Are restrictive covenants valid in these uh, employment agreements? So for, for me, again, as an employment lawyer, I would say the number one issue, as you just touched upon, that come up in the context of these Physician employment agreements, the hot topic is going to be those restrictive covenants and the non-competes because a lot of people stumble into them. There's this somehow, some way, there is this idea out there in the marketplace that I hear all the time, non-competes are unenforceable. And that is about as false as it gets, especially in the context of physician employment agreements. In fact, even before the laws in Georgia, for example, were amended to allow for more enforceability of non-competes in favor of a business. Physicians were one of the exceptions where those were considered more enforceable because of the protectable interests, because of the things that the company had to protect as physician and the special skills that a physician has that are developed in their relationship with the clients. And so that's, I would say, the number one issue, the number one uh, thing that people don't really realize is that they stumble into a problem because they end up being completely and totally hamstrung by their non-competes and non-solicits if they ever want to leave the practice. And more importantly is when they do leave the practice or when a practice has a doctor who leaves, there's a lot of litigation around physician non-competes. In fact, a lot of the really good law in this state is around physician non-competes. And why is that? Because at the end of the day, it's all about money. And everyone knows that when you're dealing with a doctor, the primary uh, it's a it's a it's a human service, and so the primary asset that you are holding when you have a doctor in a, in a physician's practice is the doctor, their skill, their personality, and their patient relationships. So when a doctor walks out the door, it could be millions of dollars of revenue, and those are really the only cases that you can make a really strong business case. Oftentimes, that it's worth going after the doctor because they could really sink a practice. So for me, what I see in terms of hot topics in physician employment agreements, almost every single one, the conversation revolves around the non-competes and how are we going to deal with those non-competes. 
There are also some considerations around how a doctor is paid, which we can talk about. Uh, that, that a lot of that does go ultimately when a doctor buys in as a partner, that's going to go into the stockholder compensation plan and how the doctor is actually going to be paid and less so in the employment agreement, which is something you could probably speak about more. Uh, but obviously when a doctor uh, joins a practice, their biggest concerns are, how am I going to get paid? How much am I going to make? Am I going to be able to have the freedom to practice medicine the way that I want to practice medicine because I'm a highly skilled professional? And then, of course, what happens when I leave? Am I going to be hamstrung from being able to continue treating patients within a certain geographic area? You know, the, Josh, those are those are all great points, and um, you know, those are th- those are all hot topics. I, I would totally agree with you. I would only add uh, the other hot topic that um, uh, I, I guess has remained in the forefront or um, pops up from time to time. Um, it sort of gets larger industry notice now with uh, some of the litigation and press clippings about uh, data breaches. But under um, you know healthcare regulations, there's always the issue of what do you do about protected health information or PHI and you know a potential HIPAA violation. And so um, the only thing that I'll mention in in that vein is sort of like what. One thing that pops up from time to time is whether you have to enter into what's known as a business associate agreement uh, in order to do uh, diligence. And uh, while while you don't, um, you do have to take some pretty um, stringent efforts. I know we do it here at the law firm. If you're ever going to be uh, the recipient uh, of any PHI, so there there are a great number of protections in place to keep patient health information or protected health information, PHI, um, protected. And that's always something that um, you have to pay particular attention to, um, you know, both with physicians buying into a practice um, and some of the notification rules uh, that you alluded to, uh, in addition to some of your normal business considerations when a physician actually leaves uh, a practice in, in Georgia and Tennessee, I know just because I'm I barred in both those states and do a fair amount in those, but you know, many, many other states have notification provisions. So if a physician leaves a practice and they've been there for a certain amount of time, then their patients have to re- receive a notice. So those patients aren't just left high and dry with um without a physician to treat uh, their specific uh, medical needs. So, you know, at any time, and you you specifically alluded to this earlier, um, you know, you're dealing in this area, there are some very, very unique uh, considerations that have to, um, have to, have to be uh, attended to, which um, also reminds me of a, of a really good, um, dad joke oh, don't that do I thought it. of. Oh, don't um, do it. I'll, I'll, I'll do it. I mean, it, it just talks about, you know, you, you sort of have to have guts to be a healthcare lawyer. And in the same, in the same vein, you have to have guts to be an organ donor. Oh gosh, that is so bad. Uh, I don't even, I don't even know what to say to that one. So what, what exactly is a business associations agreement and, and how does that help resolve what you just described? Well, I mean, uh, at, at its simplest form, a business associates agreement is an agreement between two medical providers where they specifically delineate what um, 
HIPAA protected information they will share to another uh, with another, and uh, sort of for some people who have a little bit of gray hair like me, this was always a uh, a really big you know issue in healthcare M and A getting your business associates agreement in place, typically between large healthcare providers like hospital systems. But on the so or in the private equity context, most of the time this is not. Um, necessary because as you can imagine um, negotiating uh, in this agreement what you can share what each party can do who can um, communicate with whom how they actually share information the process by which you know that information is shared how you move medical record records could sometimes take longer to negotiate than the entire transaction uh, thankfully they are not required in in most of your private equity uh, type sale agreements, which is what we deal with. So, David, let me ask you a, maybe a final question, kind of tying some of what we talked about together. We mentioned earlier about private equity starting to come in and, and purchase medical practices. You also mentioned the fact that uh, there's the corporate practice of medicine and and the fact that a, that a corporation uh, there, there's got to be a doctor involved. And and I'm just and we also know, as you mentioned before, that we're dealing with personalities generally when we're talking about uh, medical practices. So I want to, I know we've both seen quite a bit of this, but maybe you can unpack a little bit quickly about how private equity agreements are structured when they purchase a practice. And what are some of the real pitfalls we see down the road uh, when doctors get bought out by private equity and those quote personalities come to the forefront and, uh, and things don't go as well as, as we might've thought. Well, that's a that's a big question, and I'll 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 touch it uh, pretty quickly so as to not bore our listeners uh, to tears, and I'll stay away from additional dad jokes. But you always have to carve out medical assets and non medical assets in um, healthcare M and A transactions because of the corporate practice of medicine doctrine that I mentioned earlier in Georgia. And what that means is you, you can't have some corporation who actually uh, makes the call on how a physician diagnoses or treats uh, a particular ailment. So you you have to structure these things, uh, meaning these healthcare transactions, in uh, as asset sales, um, and there has to be a, a, some type of entity. Um, that's owned by other physicians, or if it's an optometry practice, optometrists, or dental practice by dentists, so that the um, healthcare providers continue to be able to practice um, unfettered from corporate influence. So that's the that's the key consideration there. Um, the second issue that's a really big question that comes up a lot from time to time is, um, and this goes to what we talked about earlier, you dealing with um, individual owners and respective personalities. I mean, a lot of times these medical, professional, dental, optometry practices are owned by the primary service provider, and they're used to being you know, the king of the castle or the queen of the castle. And when they sell, they are an employee. And, you know, they have to meet certain metrics and they're often paid on collections um, and their entire ownership structure uh, changes. Sometimes they retain ownership of the um, real estate, but that's uh, that's about that's about it. So um, 
if they don't like the deal that they have struck with the acquirer, uh, they're stuck. And that's a bitter pill to uh, swallow when there's a non-compete on top of it. So um, you need to go into these transactions with eyes open in the sense that they're not always going to work out in your favor and what happens when they don't. Yeah. And unfortunately, we too often see that folks didn't think that through beforehand and then they get stuck. So um, I I wanted to close with uh, a final really bad joke. Is that okay? Yeah. I mean, you know me, I love them. Yeah. Because we're talking about doctors and we're lawyers. So the, the famous joke about the doctor, the lawyer, and the, and the engineer, do you know this one? No, no. So no, they were, I want to hear this one. The three of them were arguing over which which profession was the oldest of three professions. And the doctor said, well, you know, on the fifth day of creation, God took a, a rib from Adam and gave it to, to Eve. And therefore we see that surgery is the oldest profession. And the engineer replied and said, no, but before that, God created heaven and the earth from chaos. So obviously, uh, engineering is the oldest profession. And then uh, the lawyer piped up and said, yeah, but who created the chaos? <laughs> you know, the, 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 that's like the the great dad joke I, I love that the uh, rotation of the earth really makes my day. <laughs> okay. So now that we have sufficiently uh, bored everyone with, with uh, medical practices and really bad dad jokes, I'm not sure how this one came about. Um, appreciate you coming on. I hope that's beneficial to the people who are listening. And uh, do you have any, uh, any final last words that do not involve uh, bad dad jokes uh, for, for folks thinking about uh, the representation of medical practices? I would say reach out to your friendly employment or transactional lawyer because we never cease to be amazed at what we find in the governing structure of various medical businesses, especially for the younger uh, physicians who um, think they've reached a professional milestone and and are uh, invited to buy into a respective practice. Um, Be sure to know what you're jumping into. Yeah, ain't that the truth. So thank you. Appreciate your time today. Thank you again, Josh. Bye-bye. You have been listening to the Stanton Law Podcast. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to get notifications of new episodes. Also, follow me, Josh Joel, on LinkedIn, where I post a wide range of updates on various topics facing businesses as they scale. If you want to discuss anything that we talked about today, please feel free to reach out and email me directly at josh.joel at stantonlawllc.com. Please be reminded that the information we discussed today is informational and not legal advice. If you have any specific legal questions or are looking for more information about any of the topics we discussed, please reach out to us or visit our website at www.stantonlawllc.com.